0: who is the founder and CEO of global marketing and branding firm, Mavens and Moguls, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her clients include Microsoft, Virgin, the New York Times company, Colgate, venture-backed startups, as well as nonprofit organizations. She graduated from Stanford University and Harvard Business School. Paige serves on several boards, is a popular speaker and columnist who has written for Entrepreneur and Forbes. Welcome to the Best Guest page. Now, can you talk a little bit about your journey as a marketer, please?
1: So I started my marketing journey back in 1990 as a summer intern at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati. Um, P&G is probably the most famous, biggest consumer products company in the world. They Their products are the leaders in every industry that they compete in. Tide Detergent, Crest Toothpaste, Pampers Diapers, Charmin Bounty. It doesn't matter. Oil of Olay. It doesn't matter. Pantene, every category, they're number one and sometimes number one and number two in, in the category. So I feel like I started my marketing career at like the mecca of marketing, and they made me an offer at the end of my internship, and I went back after business school. So I was there for about three and a half years, which was a great foundation to learn all the marketing basics. P&G invented the concept of brand management, running these brands like businesses. And so I feel like I had excellent training. Uh, I left P&G and worked for a joint venture for the Olympics, and then I worked for Coca-Cola. So the first chapter of my marketing career was working on very big, established brands with big budgets. So that was was kind of my entree into marketing. But then in the mid to late 90s, I got bitten by the dot-com bug, and I left my big corporate job. And I went and ran marketing at three consecutive startup companies, venture-backed tech firms. And each one of them had really good runs. I had three positive exits back to back. And then 22 years ago, I hung out a shingle and started my own marketing firm. So I've done big company marketing, startup marketing, and as an entrepreneur.
0: Wow. What a foundation to build on as well how did you find going from the corporate world to running your own business
1: so because i took baby steps to get there it seemed kind of like a natural transition i learned so much at the big companies but it can be kind of stifling and hierarchical you know they have a way of doing it their way and it's hard to argue with procter and gamble and coca cola because They're obviously incredibly successful businesses, but they're not necessarily looking for you to change the model at all. They know what works. Their brands in some cases are over a hundred years old. And so I was a little bit uh, frustrated because I was always trying to bend, break, and change the rules. And my bosses really didn't, they weren't looking for that. They just wanted me to execute it the way that the company was being successful. So when I left to go to startup companies, I got to really be scrappy and more entrepreneurial. And instead of market research going through a very kind of deliberate process that took months almost, you know, could it take market research at a big company can be six, nine, even 12 months long, you talk to over a 1,000 people. It's statistically significant research. When you work for a startup, you don't have the luxury of budget or time, especially when you're working on an internet business where a year in internet time is like a lifetime. So, you know, we were using SurveyMonkey and Zoomerang, getting feedback in real time and making changes in some cases, day-to-day, week-to-week. So by the time I started my own firm and hung out a shingle, you know, my clients today are not like the big Fortune 500 companies. They're not running Super Bowl ads. They're not running ads, you know, at prime time. They're being very scrappy. They're doing online marketing, thought leadership, newsjacking on the PR front. I mean, so my clients now... They have small budgets and they have to be very creative and very scrappy to break through and set up uh, a brand for themselves. They don't have the luxury of millions, you know, the P&G and Coke, they spend millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars and they're advertising all year long. And, you know, most brands don't aren't able to do that. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's quite a difference. Do you enjoy working with startups more than corporate?
1: The, the great thing about my business now, we have clients that are early stage startups and we have clients that are Fortune 500. They use my my firm differently. Small businesses, they may use us as like their own marketing department. We're an extension of their team. A big company will have an ad agency of record a market research firm, a PR shop, and they may use us more on a very discrete basis where they have a specific problem and have a project they need specific skills and resources for. A startup may put us on retainer so they can use us on an ongoing basis, but big companies use us for like surgical precision to help them in an area where they don't have experts. I like the mix, frankly. I like doing kind of granular and more strategic marketing work.
0: it sounds like you've got a great mix going on there. Now, something that you've said is being invisible online is a terrible strategy. Would you care to expand on that a little bit?
1: So I think if we learned anything during the pandemic, if you don't exist online, you really don't exist anymore so if somebody is if if you've got a meeting coming up or you're going to be a guest on somebody's podcast what is what happens well before people get together they google you and they say who is victoria bennett who like who are these people is it worth my time to return the phone call should i make an effort to get on this podcast does this person have a good following so you check them out online you google them you go to their social media accounts and you say, wait, Victoria is really interesting. She's got all these followers. She's got this great business. Look, we have all these contacts in common. I definitely want to get together and network with her. So if it's, you know, in a in a hybrid world, the way we live today, if you don't exist on LinkedIn, you know, people are going to question whether or not they're, you're even trustworthy. I mean, I feel like LinkedIn has become almost like credibility in a in a digital economy because that's how you know that person is who they say they are. And if I want to check you out kind of behind the scenes, and I see we have five contacts in common, I can reach out to those people. And one of them might be a work colleague. One of them might be a friend from college. One of them, you know, I, I might have gone to school with, who knows? But that that to me is more more important than anything you say to me is the fact that I can verify you are who you say you are and you've done what you say you did. Because I think a lot of people online, you know, whether you're talking online dating or whatever, people aren't always very honest about they can put these beautiful pictures up that don't look anything like them. They can say that, you know, they've done all this stuff. And in fact, you you know, unless you can verify, you just don't know. So I think it's really important today that people have a consistent story that they are who they say they are. You tr- You trust them. And it's just, I mean, the important thing today is you know, we have we have learned to appreciate that it's the relationships that really matter. When you can't get together in person the way we used to before the pandemic, you know, having that consistent online presence matters a lot. And I think a lot of people today don't think of themselves necessarily as a brand. They'll, You know, people will talk to me and say, I'm not Serena Williams. I'm not LeBron James, you know, Julia Roberts, George Clooney. Those people are big brands. Me, I'm just a small business person. But you and I both know everybody's a brand today because everybody has these social media platforms and they have a voice and they can kind of, you know, promote themselves, promote their their ideas, their clients, their business. And I think it's really important that you're you're out there in a consistent way, telling the same story and that you can't stand for everything today. You really, you know, people have to get to know you for the one or two things that you do best. You can't put 20 ideas out there and people can't, process that much information so I really do believe we've learned this lesson firsthand over the last three and a half years that you know your online presence matters and you have to you have to put a stake in the ground and stand for something that others can back you up and kind of legitimize that yeah you you are the real deal
0: yeah I fully agree with you Now, if someone's looking to grow their online presence and they're looking at all these different platforms, it can be a bit overwhelming to know where to start. What advice would you give?
1: It is overwhelming. You know, I always tell people, pick one or two platforms that are the most authentic to you. You don't need to be everywhere. You just need to think about what what showcases your strengths and your talents in the best light possible. So for me and my business as a professional service firm, LinkedIn is really the platform that I like the best. I don't spend time on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest. Those are really not, my clients are not looking for me everywhere. I don't really like to blog on a regular basis but I love contributing to other people's blogs who already have an audience and a lot of traffic. So I'll chime in and make comments and then always put a a signature at the bottom. So if people want to keep talking and they want to check me out, they know where to find me. But if you start a blog, you have to keep blogging. You should really, you know, people talk about feeding the beast. You can't just put one blog post out and not go back. I think a lot of people get excited and they'll start a blog. And the first week, they have three postings. And the second week, they're a little bit busier. And they only come back twice. And they're a little shorter. And then the third week, they forgot to blog. And then the fourth week, they only do one. You know, that's not building the the kind of relationship with your audience that you want. You want to be consistent and you want, you know, a brand is a promise of a relationship with your audience and you don't want to send a signal that you're being flaky or that you're losing interest. So I feel like, you know, if you like Twitter or X, that's great, but don't feel like you have to have an X account because At the end of the day, if that's not really a great platform for you and you don't, you know, some people are really quick-witted and can really leverage that in a very smart way, but not everybody can. And I think one of the big mistakes I see is people try and be different people on different platforms. They use Facebook to show kind of a more social image, they might use Twitter X to be a little more snarky or kind of, you know, kind of different humor. And then they want to look very buttoned up and very professional on LinkedIn. The problem with that is when you get that person on a phone call or on a Zoom, you don't know which version of them is going to show up. Is it the partier? Is it the snarky <laughs> one or is it the serious one and you don't want to have you don't want to raise those questions and you don't want to add uncertainty or untrustworthiness into the conversation you want to know which who it is um, you want to know what they stand for and that they're not going to embarrass you on their podcast or you know so I think it's really it's really important for your audience to know not to spread themselves too thin because you just want to constantly reinforce the one or two things you're great at in everything that you do.
0: Okay, that's really useful advice. And I can see what you mean about the different social media platforms. I think we all have seen people who are doing that. I guess it can just feel difficult to also know how much you show of you whilst remaining
1: professional. Do you have any tips on that? So I think it's always important to be authentically yourself because people can tell if you're excited about stuff and if it really, if you're if you're just trying to talk about things that you think are important to other people, but you don't care, I really think people can sniff that out. They can tell if it's just something you're going through the motions on. So my tips would be, you know, figure out what the one or two things are that you want to stand for and be known for. Think about your core values and find a niche where you can really own that real estate in your customer's brain so that when they have a problem that your product or your service can help them solve, that they think of you first. And if you can do that, you're going to have a great business. So for me, you know, when I started my company, I put a stake in the ground on marketing. Even though I have an MBA and I, you know, I, I've i been in business for decades, that's a very big ocean, you know? I I started my career on Wall Street. I worked in big corporate jobs. I worked in startup companies. You know, I'm a woman owned business. That's a lot of kind of noise, but you know, when I started my company, I I put my kind of marker down as a marketing expert. And if you have a marketing problem, I want you to come to me first so that I can help you. And if I can't help you, I'll figure out who the best resource is. And if you think about it, when Amazon started decades ago, I don't know if you remember, but they were the world's biggest bookseller. All they did was sell books. And, you know, this was before e-commerce was a big thing. And so they were telling people, if you want to buy a book, give us your credit card number, give us your address, and we'll send you the book. And at first, people were a little skeptical and nervous. But you did it, and they held up their end of the deal. And you said, wow, that was good. I'm going to do it again. And so they, they built the relationship as a book, you know, as a place to buy books. Once we all got used to that, they went into music and videos. And they said, now that we've got your credit card, now that we know where you live, would you like some CDs or DVDs? You know, and we said, okay, great. So then they they took a baby step and we kind of trusted them more. And they kept doing that. And now you buy everything from Amazon, your food, your jewelry, your clothes, there's nothing you wouldn't trust them to send you. And they, they have everybody's credit card. They know your address, they know your family's address, your friend's address, but they didn't start there. You know, That's they, they earned their trust and credibility over time. And I think that's the way small businesses have to be as well. You can't stand for everything figure out what you want to stand for, and then reinforce those messages in everything that you're doing. All the touch points need to keep uh, reminding people, this is what I do. So if you hear of somebody that needs help, you can recommend me, refer me, and you just constantly reinforce that message. And then you can grow from there. That's
0: really good advice. You know, when you were talking about Amazon, you reminded me of when I first ordered from there. And I'd seen I'd seen a book on Oprah, I think. I can't remember which one it was, but I don't know if they do it now, but I remember they had that one click button.
1: Yeah, and they still do
0: that. They still do have the one click button. I hope I've got it turned off because I ordered about five copies of that book. And <laughs> they came through the post and it's at that point where it was like brand new. And I thought, oh no, Oh my goodness what am I going to do what have I done and I emailed them saying you've sent me five copies of this I only ordered one and they they were really good though they they politely pointed out that I had clicked that one click button several times but they said you know what it's fine don't worry about it donate the extra copies to your library and we'll refund
1: you it only it not only made you feel good about the brand and your relationship But how many times have you told that story? So, you know, and now that's just part of their goodwill. And part of their brand is, you know, they hold up their end of the deal. They're very generous. They're a good corporate business. You know, they care about their communities. All that goodwill is associated with their brand now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so true, isn't it? So whilst it, you know, I was kind of blown away, like, oh my gosh, like, you know, all those books, but yeah, I've been a loyal customer ever since. And
1: Absolutely, as yeah. am I.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, something I was going to ask you about, Harvard wrote two case studies on your business. Is that correct? Goodness is... me, <laughs> how did that come uh, about?
1: So I went to Harvard Business School. That's where I got my MBA. And about Three years into me starting my company, I got a call from a professor who said, we'd like to do a case study on your business. And I was really taken aback because I got my MBA in the late 80s. I went to business school 1989 to 1991. And when I was in business school, we only... So Harvard is famous for the case study method. You don't have textbooks there you read cases of existing companies and you learn about business through these kind of stories. You read about existing companies and CEOs who have dealt with problems, whether it's a finance problem, a marketing problem, an accounting problem. So they're famous, they invented this concept of case studies. So the professor said, we'd like to do a case study. And I thought, That's ridiculous because I work out of my house and the case studies were like on IBM and Xerox and General Motors and, you know, Boots or, you know, very big famous companies. So I work out of my house and I'm a woman owned business. And we only did one case, one singular case on a woman CEO the entire two years I was in business. So I said to the professor, like, I'm not IBM. I'm not some big, famous corporate public company CEO. Why would you do a a case on me? And she said, believe it or not, basically a lot. So you have to remember, this was like in the early 2000s. So the internet was very hot. She said, students today don't want to go work for IBM and Xerox. In General Motors. They all wanna start their own business. And that, like the, the world has changed so much since you graduated, people wanna read, the students wanna read stories of people like you that went to corporate and then left and started their own successful businesses. And I thought, well, okay, if you say so. And so it ended up being two case studies And it was all about my journey from corporate to startup to becoming an entrepreneur. And there are business schools all over the world that buy the case studies from Harvard and use them as uh, teaching material. So I've been invited to go to schools all over the the U.S. and uh, also overseas when people are teaching the case on my company to tell them about my journey. So it's, it's been very humbling and exciting. My father went to Harvard Business School in the 1960s. And when the cases came out, my father was like blown away because, you know, when he was there, his class was the very first class that even accepted women into the program. By the time I got there, women were maybe close to a quarter of the class. But my father was just blown away that Harvard wanted to do a case on my company that I started. I, I don't think he could have ever been more proud than he was when I sent him those cases because it just was unthinkable to him. You know, that I think even if I had been interviewed in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, I think he was more proud of being the subject of a Harvard Business School oh. case.
0: That's lovely. That's really lovely. So what advice would you give to somebody who might be considering taking that entrepreneurial leap like you did?
1: So first and foremost, you have to make sure that you have an idea that people are going to be willing to pay for. So you've got to conduct market research. And market research does not mean asking your neighbor, your sister, your spouse, your friend, what they think, because they're probably not your target audience. And if you don't ask people who actually are the the, the target, you're not gonna get good feedback because your, your friends and family don't wanna tell you if the baby's ugly, they don't wanna hurt your feelings. So, I have people that come to me that say, "I have this great idea. Everyone loves it. I you know, I started the company, and nobody's buying it. I don't understand. And but it turns out they only ask people who knew them and love them. And that's just not you know, research needs to be objective, and you need to ask the questions in a very deliberate way where you're not leading the witness. If you say, Victoria, what do you love about my business? Tell me five things you you really like, you know, you're not gonna, that's, that's not objective. So, uh, you know, first and foremost, conduct real market research with your target audience. And you might also want to talk to not just your primary audience, but maybe your secondary and tertiary audiences as well, because With a lot of products and services, there's a gatekeeper or somebody in the chain of the journey that has to approve or be involved in the buying process. If you're selling children's cereal, you got to talk to the mother and the kid. You know, if you're selling uh, something to a big corporation, you might need to talk to procurement, finance, and the person who actually is the end user. So make sure you're getting feedback from everybody in the in the buyer's journey that it's that you might need different messages for different audiences but you need to do research kind of at every one of those levels. And then once you know that you've got the right product, the right price, the right messaging, the right positioning, then as we talked about before, you have to be noticed. You have to, you know, if a tree falls in a forest and nobody knows, nobody cares. So you have to make sure, even if you don't have a big budget, you know, are you doing online marketing? Are you doing search engine marketing? Is your website optimized? Are you optimized for text, video, images? You know, all, there's so many tools in the marketing toolkit. But, you know, you've got to be aware that, like, you know, people consume information in different ways. If you're targeting a young audience, you probably need to have a video message, not just text and copy, because a lot of young people today don't like to read. They just like to watch videos on TikTok. So maybe that's the best way to reach your audience. So just make sure that you're, you're using the right words and the right pictures to the right audience at the right time. And you know, everything changes. And so you it's not something that like you, you do it and then forget about it. Every few months, you should probably check in and see, are there new competitors? Has the message changed? Has the world changed? I mean, when you think about just in the last year or so, you know, we've gone from a global pandemic, there are wars now in the Middle East and, you know, Eastern Europe. Like, you know, how does that affect your audience? Is that relevant to the messages? Is that relevant to the buyer's decision-making? So you constantly have to reevaluate. It's not just something you can like, you know, set it and forget it. That's never a good strategy.
0: That's excellent advice. Thank you so much. It's been really great to talk to you today, Paige. And thank you for sharing so generously. Uh, where can listeners go to connect with you?
1: So, the two best places are at my website, mavensandmoguls.com. It's M A V E N S A N D M O G U L S.com or LinkedIn. Like I said, that's my platform of choice. And if you look for me, my my last name is hyphenated, but on LinkedIn, it's all together, P-A-I-G-E-A-R-N-O-F-F-E-N-N. And as one of my clients said, because my company has an ampersand in it, and I have a double-barreled, I think you say, last name, my client, when she forgets all the words, she just Googles page and mavens, and I pop right up. So thank God for search engine optimization. You can always find me that way too.
0: Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been so fun chatting today.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Best Guest podcast today. I'll talk to you again in the next episode.